Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm Megan Cole, your host. And Writing the Coast is your destination for interviews and conversations with the authors and illustrators whose books have made our annual shortlist. My guest on today's episode has been receiving a ton of acclaim for her book of poetry, How She Read. Chantal Gibson is a Vancouver-based instructor, artist, and poet. In Chantal's debut book of poetry, she examines her family's history in Nova Scotia, the portrayal and depiction of Black women in culture, and how we read, which, as you'll hear in this conversation, began with her mother. How She Read is nominated for the Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes and the Dorothy Livesay Prize for Poetry. Chantelle begins our conversation with a reading from her book. This poem is called Split Infinitive. Nope. No proper words back then to rightly explain how I came to be. My Webster's and World Book were as cruel as my Laurentian colored pencils. No dignified labels for the pigment of my skin, no terms to adequately mark the historic moment a black hand and a white hand could touch each other without somebody going to jail. Now, I live in the half-life of an epithet. Still, I long to know the number 14 Whose lips formed the words natural flesh? Whose pen sketched that iconic logo? Who typeset the snow, sans serif the font, and dropped the U in colored? Who sold out the blue dotted imperial English traced in my fourth grade speller for the tricks of our neighbors to the south? Still, I long to touch the bearded, Xanax-popping group of seven holdout, wielding his palette knife, sable brush between his teeth, painting mountains, lakes, and single trees bent and twisting in the wind, alone, wasting away in that snowbound log cabin with the single puff of chimney smoke. An image I carried daily in my Charlie's Angels backpack, and consumed without inquiry. Time has since turned natural flesh to soft peach and Indian red to roan. And I spend much less of it these days telling Nana not to say the word mulatto. While I am often reminded as time shaves lead-filled notions down to the nub, it leaves behind a splintered rainbow tinder ready for a spark. For a torch fueled with the good old days, for old-timey words to accidentally reignite. Um, I'd like to follow that poem with with a poem called Veronica, and in my book, the the, the last poem uh, you will see uh, an, a painting of, uh, of of a black woman by Yvonne McCaig Hauser, and uh, she created this oil painting in 1933. And it's, uh, it's a portrait uh, of a studio model 
and it sits at the center of the art gallery uh, of Ontario. And uh, so Veronica closes my book. I, it is a, a poem in response to Split Infinitive. Veronica, what's it like at the center of the AGO? Hmm. Imagine being colored, drawn, and placed in a wooden frame. Another hung woman positioned just so in the middle of a landscape surrounded by rocks, lakes, mountains, and trees. McDonald to your right, Carmichael to your left. Imagine being forced to look, to spend every unblinking moment of an eight-day week staring at a Lauren Harris landscape, a frozen wall of whiteness, when you know outside the glaciers are melting, the trees are falling one by one, and the Beaufort scale has shrugged and turned its back on September. Now the winter legends are sold in the gift shop. T-shirts, handbags, journals, calendars, coffee cups, board games. Puzzling, isn't it? Makes you want to laugh a little, knowing you've been placed here at the center by kinder hands to reconcile the past, to challenge the climate of the present. I'm a sign of the times, still no one knows my name. What's it like? It's like I'm the number one answer to the question you haven't considered, the one you never thought to ask, the one staring you right in the face. Thank you. Thanks. I, I wanted to start maybe by talking a little bit. I, it's, I, I love that you actually included Veronica because something I was really struck by with your book was how you, your, the poetry engaged with art and photography. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I would love to talk about that. So <laughs> I guess the first thing that I, that I would say is that my, my background, my educational background has always been a, a mix of English literature and art history. And so I've, I've always been interested in, in this overlap between uh, writing and image. And also the, the images in my book. So the book is, is part of the book is about the representation of black women uh, across the Canadian cultural landscape. And so inside the book, there are paintings and photographs. And I, I guess the, the, the key for me was to be able to, um, you know, be able to write poems in response to uh, these images and to give uh, the women in these images a voice where they did not have a voice before. So uh, in one way, it's, uh, ec you know, ecophrastic poetry, which is, you know, writing in response to an artwork. But really what I was more interested in is, you know, just looking at images of black women in, in, in art and, um, and across popular culture. So, for example, um, the Viola Desmond stamp uh, has a photograph of Viola Desmond, which we see on our $10 bill. 
And I just imagined uh, these different women across different points in history uh, talking about their own representation and especially in the current moment. I think one of my favorite examples of the way you engaged with the art was Centerfold, which was, I remember flipping through it and seeing the artwork at first. And I, I think it was interesting once I kind of was reading through page by page and I got to that point and I kind of had this like aha moment, which I thought, you know, I thought how clever this is, um, but also just how powerful too. It, can you share a little bit about the process that you went through for that piece in particular? Absolutely. So I, I knew that, uh, well, I, I guess I'll just contextualize, uh, first of all, that at the center of the book, um, there are two images, and one is a photograph circa 1850 of, uh, of an American slave, and uh, it's a famous portrait by Joseph uh, Zeely. And, and it's called uh, Delia, Country Born of African Parents. And so this is an ethnographic representation of, you know, a scientific representation of a black woman. And her dress has been lowered and she's bare-breasted. Uh, next to that, in the center of the book, is uh, a painted portrait by Francois uh, Malpar de Beaucourt, and it's called Portrait of a Haitian Woman. And this is done in 1786, and this is of a slave in Montreal. And so she is in a, in a you know, a white blouse, but a part of the blouse has been lower and she has a, a breast exposed. So I have uh, done research in the past where I have talked about these images and, and how, you know, black women have been represented as subjects, uh, both in art and in science. But the thing is, is when you're doing more academic work, those, those, uh, subjects don't get a voice. So I always knew I was going to write a, with them or about them one day in a more creative form. So um, it all kind of, it came together for me um, in this poem, Centerfolds. So first of all, the images sit at the center of the book and they kind of riff on the idea of the, you know, the Vogue centerfold, the full page layout, but it also riffs on the idea of, you know, the like the 1970s, uh, you know, like penthouse playboy centerfold at the center of the book. But it's also taking women who have been at the margins and placing them at the center of the book. But the context that they're in is, is a dialogue poem, um, which reads more like a script. And the two of them are talking to each other. Um, so they're, they're on a wall um, at an art gallery and they're talking to each other about how they've been drawn, how they have been represented, and about the context they are in in the current moment and who's looking at them. So that's really how how that poem came to be. It, yeah, it's such a an interesting poem, and I think what I liked so much about that one and Veronica, and uh, the piece about the young girl dressed up in her tight lace boots and Vi Viola Desmond was that idea of of engaging with the voices that are silenced and the gaps that are left in our history because of that silencing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, 
the thing that I appreciate, like I really, really appreciated, you know, working with Caitlin Press and in, in particular uh, with uh, Vicki Johnson because it was a lot to be able to include so many color images in a book of poetry. But I am one of those people that I'm always asking for the for example. And when you are in daily conversations, uh, you know, with folks about, you know, when you're talking about race or black people, um, you know, often folks don't know that there was slavery in Canada, right? Or, or there's this, you know, this kind of myth that, that, that the country d doesn't really have these uh, racist, um, you know, associations with black people because everybody came from somewhere else to be here. And I think that having visual arguments for people to see and go, wow, like that painting was actually created in this country and that is actually um, a slave when a lot of people don't even know that slavery existed. Or uh, you were talking about the, the uh, image of a sad young black girl perched on a bench. And that was actually from a collection of, of free black people that were um, that were living in Ontario and those images were, were um, taken from the the Rick Bell archives and I just happened to be at the AGO at a time where uh, Julie Crooks and others had curated this show and I was like that's amazing an entire show of, of photographs of old photographs of, of black people that we wouldn't have you know we wouldn't have normally seen in an art gallery so I feel like I wanted my work to also be engaging in what is happening in, in the current cultural moment, which is making the invisible visible. Another really great picture, of course, is the one on the cover. And I heard that that one is your mother. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So if you if you if you look at, at this particular photograph, this is a, a little girl. This is my mom's first grade photo. And so uh, she was uh, born in Nova Scotia in 1950. And so this is taken around 1956. And to, to me, like I've had this, you know, photo uh, forever. Uh, my mom died in, in 1986, but I've had this photo and there was always something about it that just intrigued me about, you know, the school photo sitting posed front of a book map in the back. But I, so part of my engagement with this photo was to think about what kinds of books was my mother reading at this time, right? And so that really started the engagement um, in the, across the poems with old primers and spellers that would have been around in the era that my mom, uh, you know, would have been learning how to read. And, and she was, you know, born and raised in Nova Scotia. So uh, there's this kind of uh, theme of Nova Scotia across the book, in particular, you know, the relationship with Viola Desmond, because uh, my, well, Viola Desmond was, you know, an adult when my you know, mom was a kid, but my mother grew up in Viola Desmond's Nova Scotia. Yeah, it's such a it's such a great photo and it does set the tone for for the book really beautifully. I wondered if you could, uh, I guess we're kind of going back to the beginning here, but I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the inspiration for this book and and how it got started. Well, that's a really good question. 
So, uh, and of course, I'm not going to give you a straight answer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably going to end up giving you a circular answer because everything in the book seems to fall back on itself. But I think the book has several, the, the book has several beginnings. So one beginning is with my mom. And my mother really was, you know, was my first book. And so, um, so part of the book is, is a reflection of looking back at, you know, what it would be like to be, you know, a little uh, black girl uh, born and raised in, in Canada. And so there's that trajectory. So f- for me, you know, the, the book really started when I was a kid because I was reading my mom. I was reading gestures. I was reading the way she talked. And so that is, you know, kind of one level of the book. Then the book also starts really with my own engagement in in school. So in particular, I think the book started writing itself in particular when I was an undergrad in the English department and not seeing black characters in the books that I'd read. And it really wasn't until, you know, I took American Lit and I encountered, you know, Toni Morrison that I I really noticed that there are no black people in these books until I took a third year English lit class. And uh, and I met uh, a character called the Black Wench in a Thomas McCulloch novel and called The Stepshire Letters. And the way this figure was represented, the Black Wench, uh, she didn't have a name. And it was this really kind of comical, satirical character that just kind of got the crap kicked out of her in this book. And we never talked about it in class, right? Like we were we were talking about like, you know, issues around Puritanism and, you know, and the land and like it, it, it and nobody, including myself, like no one talked about this character and I didn't feel comfortable like I could talk about that character and I never let it go. So here I am 20 something years later and the black wench has a poem. There's a poem about her in the book and about what it was to be in that kind of a classroom environment. And the voices speaking back to the master who was Thomas McCulloch. So it started there. And then probably to answer, answer your question, I really started writing this book uh, on, a, on a study leave from SFU in 2017, 2018. And for some reason, everything just came together. And I knew I want a component about writing. I want a component about grammar. I want a component about art. I want a component about black women. And I just wrote every day for, you know, for a year over and over until, until it evolved. It was interesting for me because I took a minute to um, explore your website a bit and I saw your work of the altered books and where you you wrote about um, exploring the boundaries and limitations of the book. And it kind of felt like like how she reads was an extension of that almost. Were you thinking about that at all as you were creating this this real book? Absolutely. So and it's funny that you say this real book. Right. Because all the books are real and they all have content. It's just that the writing or the text looks different. Right. So absolutely. So um, in my in my visual art practice, I have this collection of old historical texts that um, have been, you know, turned into sculptures. Right. And so I load them up with thread and I braid them. And the thing that I'm imagining is 
the the places where there's absences and silences and omissions and i think you know if the if if a text if a romanized uh, text if an english text is not including uh in this case you know uh blackness what might i do with uh, with other materials right so when you see these book sculptures i call them uh historical interventions um i'm i'm sculpting with thread what hasn't been said and i can't tell you exactly what the words are but maybe you read something viscerally from the shapes and images and the forms that evolve uh, so i'll usually start with a page where there's been some kind of erasure and then um, and and then a sculpture evolves so those are altered books um, i consider you know how she read also another kind of altered book so for example um, a lot of the poems uh, uh, for example uh, you know there's a, a poem uh, homonyms that um, sort of sounds like a, it sort of looks like a, a, a sestina um, but then when you start to you know when you start to, to read it it's like it sort of feels like a sestina but it's not a sestina it's an altered version of a sestina and then if uh, at, throughout the book, I play a lot with with mark making, and my book ends with um, with a sonic crown. But the sonic crown is uh, made out of the most basic elements of my handwriting. So you can't read it. It's not it's not English anymore. It's something else, and so it's become something that is purely graphic. So you can't read it, but maybe you can feel it or interpret it. So to me, uh, this book of poetry is is really just another kind of altered uh, historical text. And it was in- it's interesting that you mention erasure too, because you engage with erasure in in how she reads too. There are parts where words are left out, and and so that was interesting to see as well on the page. Well, you know what the the cool thing uh, for me, of course, like going back and and looking at these like old you know um, school primers, is that I've always been really interested in the fact that when we learn how to read, we start with erasure, because we always learn to fill in the blanks. Blank. Yeah. yeah. So erasure is actually fundamental to uh, our learning how to use you know adopt and a use letters and then we have this kind of cultural agreement about what we do with letters and how they fit together and the sounds that they make and then we have of course a set of rules about how we you know use words and how they line up in a sentence and so um so i I think i've i think that a lot of the poems have these blank spots that allow the reader to fill in the blank but it, at the same time, those are very, very hard poems to actually read, right? It's very, very hard to read blank space. So, so what I, I think, you know, what the poems are trying to always have is, is a little bit of a tension between uh, to recognize this thing that our mind automatically does, right? We just automatically fill in, fill in blanks because that's what we were trained to do, you know, when we were little kids. Yeah. 
And I'm, it, I, the thing, too, that's interesting about erasure, and it's really kind of come to the front of my mind in talking to you today, is also the historical erasure and you talking about the history of slavery in Canada. There's a large part of our history that's been erased, and that was done in the school system as well, of course, and culturally, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think we're talking about it well, we're really talking about it a lot right now, given, you know, you know, what is happening currently in the cultural moment with protests and Black Lives Matter protests, you know, across this country and, and really around the world. This notion of, of Canada being white is, is highly inscribed across our cultural and institutional landscapes. And it's really, really, of course, you know, closely tied to, you know, to power and uh, hegemonic structures, right? So there, there is something to be gained, you know, when we talk about power in giving voice to one group and silencing um, another. And I, I feel like so much cultural work right now is being done to, to unearth uh, the silences, right? And so that's why, you know, we're, we're calling, you know, a lot of that work is, is decolonization and it's uncomfortable because uh, systems are being shaken and books like mine and actually, you know, um, uh, like there there's just a ton of literature being written right now that is just doing this kind of, doing this kind of work that, you know, we're, at, I think we're at a time right now where, uh, we can't write histories without asking who are we, who are we including, and who are we excluding. Uh, but part of you know my process of, of writing this book was to think about you know the trajectory of where did I even see um, black people in in all the literature that I read from a child to you know to to university, and I mean I didn't even write about uh, a black character or a black person. Um, I, in high school until grade 11. And I did that because I chose to write in a history class about Idi Amin. And that was only because I kept hearing this voice in the news. Right. And, and that is actually how I learned about who this person was. But so when you have erasures and silences, in particular in curriculum, what it does is it, it shuts down it shuts down uh, discussion. It shuts down discourse. Um, it, it closes off questions, and it just makes room for one dominant discourse, right? And so, what we're seeing right now uh, across all areas is a, is a disruption of that. And I think for me, what I I appreciated in reading your book was also that it made me as a white person kind of think about the version of Canada that I've been taught and that is reinforced and it's always kind of the Canada is the polite uh, neighbor to the United States which of course we all know to be a construction so I appreciated that I was able to read your poems and kind of think about the version of Canada that I I've been taught. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's the version that I grew up with as well. Right. And it's the version that I, you know, that I studied in school when I was in grad school. And it's it's the, the version that I'm challenging here when I'm doing poetry readings and when I'm doing public talks, uh, for example, like the, the Viola Desmond poem, you know, I have her 
writing back to the government of Canada and she's talking about her representation on the stamp. And so there's this really kind of sticky tension that is happening with that stamp because on the one hand, uh, she's being recognized, right? And, and that should be happening. And associated with that is, you know, uh, her free pardon and people learn about, you know, these events that had happened, that happened, you know, in Nova Scotia and that we wouldn't normally associate, you know, with, with Canada, you know, like having a, a, a woman be dragged out of a theater because she wouldn't sit, um, because she, you know, she wouldn't sit in the balcony, right? Like that seems like a very iconic American image at the same time. I want people to also think about that smiling face that's on the stamp or that's now on our $10 bill does not tell the whole story, right? So even in the process of representing, um, you know, and people are happy to carry that $10 bill or that stamp and feel like we're doing good cultural work, that smile is also erasing the realities of, of what happens. So it's a very, very sticky place to be, it's a real, it's a, it's an in-between place, right? We never get one representation without having some kind of cost to it, uh, which is why decolonizing work is so, you know, is so challenging. Thanks so much to Chantal for being on the podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening and supporting Writing the Coast. It means a lot that you take the time to download and listen to these episodes and to share them with your friends. If you're interested in finding out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to check out our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with Gio McClear, who co-created the book, It Began with a Page, How Gio Fujikawa Drew the Way. Until we meet again over the podcast airwaves, I hope you enjoy the sunshine, maybe a beach day with a great book, and don't forget, support your local booksellers.